Hello and welcome to another episode of Is This Just Fantasy? I'm your host, Geordie Bailey. And once again, I'm his eternal companion, Duncan Nickel. There's a lot of different quotes you could have done for this one. I, <laughs> I was tempted to open the show with, You alone, Duncan, are fit to review Elric. I shall record you. I shall become your editor and give you podcasts, and the source of podcasts. Though host I be, and co-host you. I love how Michael Moorcock writes characters. He doesn't let little things about like how people actually talk get in the way no. of epic moments and dialogue. Absolutely not. He is the most. He's so committed to. We know last time we spoke about like the children of Huron and about how like oh you don't actually have to make people sound like they live in an old-fashioned world, but Michael Moorcock really makes people sound like they're from another world. There's a bit in one of the later stories where Moonglum is described as lowering himself into a pool of water philosophically. Oh, what does that even mean? Is he pensive upon his face? Is he, is he, is he getting and he's like, what does, what does even water mean? If I say I like this water and Jerry on a parallel earth says he likes water, but they're different substances with the same properties, do we mean the same thing? That's a great question, Duncan. Uh, we'll never get to the bottom of that one, but we, what we can get to the bottom of is, what are we talking about today? Today we're talking about the Michael Moorcock Elric novel, Weird of the White Wolf. Or is it a novel? I'm not sure. It's a collection of short now, stories. That is a question. Yeah, I've heard it called a collection of novelettes, which Ooh. is very impressive because I've never heard the phrase novelette before. No, novella, I think normally is the short I've heard of plenty of novellas, but something's really nice about the word novelette. My coffee literally is called uh, Weird of the White Wolf. And then in the corner, there's like a yellow banner across the cover art, literally going an Elric novel, just in case you're confused. Uh, I, there is something difficult about some of the naming conventions of Moorcock's stories. Like, it's really difficult that he named one of his stories Elric of Melnobene, but... Elric doesn't have a surname, so if you want to look him up, um, you have to search for Elric of Melnibone to avoid getting all of the, the Elric brothers, so you can punch your <laughs> stuff from Full Metal Alchemist. I'm, I'm not going to lie, spelling Melnibone, even though I've been staring at that word for like the last two weeks, is quite the challenge. But, Geordie, we've already talked about Elric of Melnibone, actually. It's one of our earlier episodes. Yeah, our first good one. I introduced you to it, and yes, we both liked it. Oh yeah, safe to say. Safe I think, yeah, book. I think I like it even more now than I did back then, and I enjoyed it in our first episode. So, what are we reading this week? We're reading Weird of the White Wolf, which is not the sequel. No, would you it's like to the original? Say? Yes, I, this is my test. See how much I've learned in the past year since we first did Elric. So, the collection we're reading right now is a collection of short stories written by Michael Moorcock in the late sixties which begins with The Dreaming City, the first Elric story, um, and the first of many short stories to come, which will be packaged into different, complicated collections, culminating with Stormbringer, which is actually what I am reading in my personal life at the moment, but I haven't finished it, so I'm not going to give any critique on it today. And this is kind of weird, because so the first one we looked at was the first chronological book, Elric and Manipane, yes, which I stand by is the introduction. Like the author himself has said, it's a prequel, I wrote it to be the place to start, 
go read El Vico yeah. first. Which is very strange that when I read Weird Little White Wolf in the Saga of Elric Volume 1, Elric of Melnibane, also confusing, by the way, um, it didn't start with the Dreaming City, it started with the Dream Quest of Earl Ubeck. Okay, yes, that's an interesting one. Which we're one. skipping. What? You're skipping the Dream of... Yeah, you didn't read it this week. I did read it, and do you know what's really... Oh, I love that. God's sake. Don't worry, we can skip it. It's skippable. It's so weird. So in this collection of Elric stories, the very first yep. story is not starring Elric and doesn't relate no. to anything else in this book. No, and the reason why you would include it is that, for one thing, it gives insight into the origin of Elric's world, about how it was forged out of chaos. So that's helpful information. Um, weird place to put it, basically towards the end of your book, after we've already been through, like, the seas of fate. Um, and also the most important reason is it introduced the character of Yashana, who's not in Elric Volume 1, so why is it at this point? Like, you had the choice moment to structure to put it at the start of the next one, put it before the Sleeping Sorceress. What really gets me is that I actually have another collection called The Singing Citadel. And in that collection, we have The Singing Citadel, which is another short story in this collection, The Weird of White Wolf. But it also has The Dream of El Ubeck, but it calls it something okay. different. It calls it The Masters of Chaos, and it places yeah. it after The Singing Citadel. So he, he named a bunch of his stories different things. There's one, like, Sleeping Sorceress is also called The Vanishing Tower. Um, the Caravan of Forgotten Dreams is also called The Flamebringers. And there's two different versions of Stormbringer. So the version of Stormbringer that I'm reading right now is Stormbringer Revised. What happened in the first one? I don't even know what copy my Stormbringer is. Oh, that is fantastic. I'd love to know if we then compared notes and we actually got mm. quite a few notes. I had that experience going back a little while, a little bit of personal history before we get back to the Weird of the White Wolf. It messed me up so much. There are two versions of Frankenstein. Yeah, 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 this is a good story, actually. It drove, right, so we are doing A-level English literature, and we're told, right, we're doing Frankenstein people. So after half-term, come back, and we're going to start doing Frankenstein. So what do I do? I go home, and over the half-term, I read my family's copy of Frankenstein. Like, cover to cover, loved it, really enjoyed the book, come back in, and it was the wrong copy. And not only was it the wrong copy, firstly, I wasn't meant to read it because we were meant to be reading it chapter by chapter slowly over yep. the freaking weeks. Can't stand that. I know it's not meant to help you, but it drove me mad. No, and then I know I'd what you mean. Get, get, keep getting questions. Your teacher would be like, so guys, what do you think is their foreshadowing? You'd be like, well, I finished the book because why <laughs> wouldn't I read it ahead of the course? And then also I kept struggling. I kept messing up because the differences, they're subtle. Oh, they're so subtle and they would trip mm -hmm. me up constantly. There's a line in the original version where Victor refers to his cousin as his playmate. But mm. in the revised version, he refers to them as his plaything. And obviously, yeah. when you're like Very writing different. an exam and you're trying to break down the language, that's so important. And it just completely threw me. So always know which edition of a book you're reading. Why not just study the original? Who knows? Oh, that still annoys me. And if you're apparently if you're going to do a book for class, just let people read it first. Don't I mean, the reason you do it is because you have kids who just will not read the book unless you put a gun to their head. Like, back in, back in school, like, I would sit in an English classroom. I would sit next to my pal Harry. 
and the two of us were so far ahead in the book we were reading, The Other Side of Truth, that we would just pull out our own personal books that we were reading at the time. I don't remember what I was reading, but I remember distinctly that he was reading a big omnibus collection of Warhammer 40k stories. And then the teacher would get cross at us and say, why aren't you reading the book? And then I would just explain what was happening in the chapter, which everyone else was reading through. I had even in kind of a similar place where you're so far ahead. We had this really annoying thing where the teacher got us to like read it out in turn, like going yeah, around the exactly. class, like read out a page. And then you get to me and I'd be like, so wh- where are you guys? I, And it would make me look like I wasn't paying attention. I'm like, no, I'm just so far ahead. This is... Exactly, because I would be literally reading like two chapters ahead of a classroom because I was just reading it at my own speed. And I'd have to double back. Anyway, you know what? They're not teaching classrooms. <laughs> Eric of Melnibone. So, The Weird of the White Wolf is the third chronological collection containing the very earliest stories. And the first story, The Dreaming City. And I think that's where we'll just have to start. We're going to have to jump in here. So... Geordie, The Dreaming City, the story of oh, Elric slaps. returning to Emir? Emir. Emir, excuse me. He, which he abandoned off-page in a prequel book that got written later, and now he's yes. returning to rescue his cousin and slay his other cousin. So this story is awesome. What an awesome beginning to a character. Imagine you've never heard of Elric before and he saunters in dressed like a weirdo with an evil sentient sword and he's like, what is my task? What is my quest? I'm going to destroy my own civilization. Not because the civilization has wronged me. I just care about them so little that in order to get my revenge and in order to save the woman I love, they're just collateral damage. It really sets things up quite early, kind of the moral compass for Elric. Because he is our hero, but he does not care about the people that get caught in between in, when he goes to fight. Mm. It's it, it's crazy. Like, he's the most anti-heroic anti-hero. I, he has to stand head and shoulders above the long annals of fantasy anti-heroes in how tied in he is to evil. Like... He just, it, oh my goodness. Let's just kind of go down the list here. He is clearly, he's got that warlock energy. His patron deity is the god of chaos. Like he is summoning demons in this world. Uh, let me think what's some of the other ones. Clearly disregard, like in the course of Elric, I think he attacks like three cities over the series. And it's just like, yeah, slaughter all the civilians. I've got my mission. They don't matter has really kind of a laissez-faire approach to slavery and there's a moment yep. in one of the later parts of this story's collection of stories the thing in the scene, scene citadel so elvic's sword whenever he cuts someone down he takes their soul and uses mm-hmm. the energy to power himself and there's a bit where a monster's bearing down on him and he literally just side eyes like the nameless soldiers that are with him like you give me a power boost Mm-hmm, Maybe I'll mm-hmm. just slash you. And the only reason he doesn't is they run away first. <laughs> oh my god. It's there's something so darkly wonderful about this whole story and how it just exists in this completely absent world where 
like with the dialogue, like the way in which it's all so unearthly, the characters themselves are capable of being so strange and elemental. Like, you cannot like Elric, but he's so fucking cool. <laughs> he is definitely kind of channeling that kind of cool Dark Loner archetype. He is the Dark Archetype. Everyone else is just impersonating him. This guy came before Shadow the Hedgehog, Duncan. I hate to break it to you. I think there's some interesting things though, that he does do, which I think makes him actually work in these stories. One is the world he's in is set up for his archetype. This world isn't as grounded as other fantasy literature. I talked when we read Sons of the Girls about, I love the scenes, oh, when they have a meal and people sit down and you can feel the taste of the food. And this, this world's a little bit more nebulous, I feel. Mm-hmm. A lot exists in the world of Elric, just so that Elric can have his adventures. And I think that kind of gives me personally a bit of a disconnect. And the second thing I think is that... It's like it's like a world full of dungeons. It's a lot like, you know, it's a sword and sorcery. Like, the world is full of perils that need to be explored. Like, you can just be an adventurer. That's a normal thing that you can just be in this world. But I also think what happens with Elric, and this is something where I think a lot of people afterwards maybe would miss when it comes to this sort of character, is that he is still just nice enough. Or he does just enough yes. of the right things. I talked about like mostly like slavery. There's actually a, thing, a scene at the start of the scene, Citadel, where he's like takes a ship and he's like, "Okay, guys, free all the slaves." And even one of his companions is like, "Really?" And he's like, "Yeah, why not?" Yeah, he's not so like, capricious. You could literally flip a coin and just land wherever. He would think nothing of killing all of them, but he just on the whims like, "Yeah, I'm gonna be I'm gonna be good here. Who cares?" And obviously, from the character's point of view, it's on a whim. But from the Michael Moorcock's point of view as the author, I think he is very carefully kind of calculating out just how bad he can make Elric before he does just slip into Arsenal. And I think he he really has a fine hand on that dial. Of, yeah, there's uh, a great let's bring him bit back in this story. You know, so Elric has said specifically, you need to the raiders who are going to help him destroy Imre the Beautiful. You have to spare just two people in all of Melnibane. You can kill everyone else. I don't care. Just spare two people. And he means Cimmeril, his his uh, his betrothed. And he means Tanglebones, his manservants. Apparently the only guy he likes. Poor Divim Tvar, you know? He went on that big adventure with Elric. They were best buds. He ex- And I reread Elric of Melnibane before this. And he explicitly says in the most potent dose of dramatic irony ever elric please don't destroy imrir he has no reason to suspect it's going to happen but he's like listen i just have a bad feeling please don't do it he's like bro i would never okay and you're also going to be like chill to my sons right you're going to be good to them yeah 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 man yeah 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 i'd never do anything bad to divim slorm and the other one so how did you feel then reading this story Having had that context of, I presume you read both Elric and Libanet and the collection of short stories that fits in between uh, that novel and this short story collection, Sailors and the Seas of Fate. I mean, I have read Sailors and the Seas of, Seas of Fate, but I've only read it once. Um, I didn't like it that much. I personally felt it's the wrong order to actually read this in. So let's let's jump in here. So chronologically, the way Michael Moorcock would like you to read it, he'd like you to read the prequel, Elric of Mernibane, 
And then he'd like to read Elric's adventures in between Elric of Menebene and the Dreamy City. Those being The Fortress of a Pearl, which I have tried to reread over the past two weeks. I have failed at again. I cannot finish it. Um, and Sailors and the Seas of Fate. And Sailors and the Seas of Fate is like Fortress of a Pearl was written after. That's written post Stormbringer. And it introduces to you, the reader, if you're reading chronologically, the idea of the Eternal Champion, which is that Elric is part of a continuum of heroes from across the multiverse who are one person, just reincarnated through, continu- through, through all time and space. And he chooses specifically Hawkmoon and Corum, two of his other most popular heroes, who are also incarnations of the Eternal Champions. Um, this is way too much to hit a new reader with. I was, like, really surprised that I was being introduced to characters so soon. But I finished that story, and I still don't know who the fuck Hawkmoon is. Like, I, I, I don't know anything about Hawkmoon. I know none of his character traits. I don't know what makes him special. Uh, they don't do anything. Even Elric doesn't even steal anyone's souls. It's, it's so weird and nebulous. Uh, so, sailing to the past... Thumbs down. Uh, no good. Okay, that's interesting. That's kind of different to my tone. I actually end up really yeah. liking Sailors and the Sea of Fates. In fact... Sailors and the Sea of Fates, the rest of it's better. I like Sailing to the Present. Uh, it's an short story which we introduced to Smeorgion Boldhead. Yeah, Smeorgion Boldhead. I, I didn't realise that he was the same guy who did Raids in Rear when I read that. Um, okay understand that, that until i read a wikipedia article about it that changes so much because when i first read through elric obviously elric's companion his eternal companion is the character moonglum introduced in this collection but i didn't know that reading chronologically so i got really connected to smilgnir and was like oh this is his buddy this is their friend okay he's going off an adventure with this guy so when he dies, kind of unceremoniously in Dreaming City, spoilers, I was kind of, I was kind of annoyed. I was like, this seems almost anticlimactic to the trilogy projection that I sort of thought I was getting. I sure hope no companions of Elric die really unceremoniously in later adventures. Yeah, he's not finished Stormbringer yet. Yeeks. Yeah, I'm worried about Moonglum. There was one bit where like. They really implied that Moonglum was going to die, and then in the next page he shows up again. So, I guess he's fine. I guess nothing bad will ever happen to Moonglum. He's definitely not going to be drunk. And not in the pleasant way. No, absolutely not. In fact, I think all of Elric's companions are going to get through just fine. That'll be great, don't you worry. We'll get to Stormbringer one day. I haven't day. finished Fortress and the Pearl, I don't know what happens to that lady. I mean, does she show up in later books? No. So, Dreaming City is the first story. Even if it's sort of the capstone of a trilogy, if you read it chronologically, this is your introduction to Elric. Geordie, do you think you could have read this and been happy? Did I do wrong by making you read Elric and Menibne first? Um, no. I think you could read either of these in either order. Uh, you get more dramatic irony if you read um, Elric of Menibne second. Uh, but either way, great starting points. I think, personally, I would be very happy if I either started with this book and then read Elric of Menibene or completely vice versa. 
I would recommend to people, don't read Fortress of the Pearl and don't read uh, Sailors and the Sea of Fate until after the Dreaming City and the Weird of a White Wolf in general. And I would specifically say, read The Sleeping Sorceress and everything in the collection of The Stealer of Souls before sailing to the Seas of Fate. Because the introduction to the Eternal Champion in that collection is much, much better than sailing to the Seas of Fate. Alrighty. I hope we've got that all cleared up. I'm certainly not confused. Yes, we're definitely not just throwing tons of really difficult names around. So let's actually get into some of the fucking awesome shit that happens in the dreamy city because it's dramatic as hell does this story okay so this story opens with these conspirators all around the table going we're gonna take the city but can we do it without elric elric's not here maybe he's betrayed us like we get talk up to elric elric is so cool and important we can't do it without him great introduction to your hero I also kind of, when I was reading this, and maybe it's obviously where my brain's always at, getting those vibes back to like Robert E. Howard, where you get the first Conan story opens with conspirators. Now, these guys in the Conan story are plotting to overthrow Conan, but it's kind of the same vibe. They're all sitting around a table talking about how awesome our character is. Like, we can't possibly take the king. Maybe when we get him in his bedchamber, we'll stand a chance. You know, he'll be unarmed and there'll be 20 of us. So, you know, 50-50 odds. And I think this is kind of gets the same vibe. You get other characters to discuss how cool a char- the main lead is just beforehand, just to give that intro. And then obviously your main lead then needs to live up to it. And I think Elric does. Yeah. And then Elric comes in and verbally slaps everyone with his dick, completely being like, yeah, I can do it. No problem. Oh, this would be child's play. Oh, you're all idiots except for me. But in a way, we're like, oh my god, he's so fucking cool. He's so cool. He's he's completely in control of the situation. He knows things which no one can know. There are secrets he can say that will drive them mad. And then following off on the scene then, Elric does, and I completely forgot this, he goes on a small preemptive strike, doesn't he? Into the city before the big battles. Yeah, there's a little recon mission. And I like this, we get a bit of a standalone taste of what he does. His sort of approach, he's not kind of sneaking through... The, the castle, you know, he's more of a, I'm going to stroll in, cash, and then just kill anyone who I bump into. Mm-hmm. That's only the vibe I got. Yeah, the great thing about this scene is that it's over with really fast, and basically it's sort of like a, it covers Elric's tracks, because what he really wants to do is rescue Cimmeril and kill Irkum. Nothing else matters. He actually doesn't care about the sack of Imrir. It's it's meaningless to him. So the reader must question, okay, well, why don't you just go and get Cimmeril and kill him, and then don't destroy Imrir? Like, you could just be emperor or not be emperor. It's not a big deal. And so he covers the bases. He says, oh no, Cimmeril is in a deep eternal slumber. Again. Put there by her wicked brother, Ikun. Or so again. You think, I mean, again, he should have learned his lesson the first time, shouldn't he? He does. So this same situation plays out in Elric and Nivenay. Yukun puts him in an eternal slumber and runs away in that story. Elric goes after him, beats him up, drags him home and says, right, wake her up. He does so. And then he goes to Yukun. Okay, I'm off for a gap year. You're going to sit here as regent. And... 
now reading Dreaming City, that doesn't quite seem to line up. If there was any point in Dreaming City, maybe I missed it, where he goes, oh yes, I installed Jakuna's Regent. Yeah, uh, I think at the end of the day, having Elric make that decision, I mean, it was always just a bad idea, and the story does justify it in that it, like, it just is a bad idea, and the reader notes it's a bad idea, and everyone around Elric knows it's a bad idea, uh, but it's just Elric makes a mistake, and like characters are allowed to make mistakes. But when you read this, you're like, it didn't have to be like that. Maybe Ikun should have been in jail, and he escaped, or someone released him, and you know, and then he he had a little revolution, and or maybe he he got people to just turn against Elric, and there's a reason why he can't just sit himself back upon that. The would have made a bit more sense, at least from my perspective, if it was kind of a. Oh, the the corruption was throughout the entire city. You know, the people wanted Yakun, this absolute despot on the throne, to enable their kind of evil ways. But then again, I don't think mm-hmm. that's actually the the point. The point is, Elric is doing. It's clearly getting a lot of collateral damage in to rescue one person. So, so, so we've justified. You have to wake Simmeril up, and only Echo can do that. So he has to make her him do that, and so the invasion. It's an interesting invasion. Yeah, it doesn't really focus too much on, like, the sacking of Imria. It's, it's ju- it demonstrates that, you know, they couldn't do this without Elric for a number of reasons. You can show them, like, the secret hiding places and that. And they basically immediately overwhelm the city and, like, bust through by, like, attacking so suddenly and so swiftly. And then Elric fails to find Cimmeril, Tangle Bones... He, his co-conspirator has been murdered or lies dying. Um, it's a bit where he's like, oh, I'm sorry, Elric. Ikum, he stuck up behind me and he stabbed me. And Elric goes, you fucking idiot. You fucking idiot. How could you screw this up so bad? Oh, but I'm sorry you're dying. Oh, I'm not too bad. I'm just mostly bad. It's just, in fact, I don't think it's even that. I think it's because Rattlebones is like, but I know where Yakun has gone. And Elric's like, okay, fair enough. I forgive you. I'm not going to help you, but <laughs> enjoy bleeding to death on the stairs and then just strolls off. Yep. And then we have our, our, the duel, the dramatic confrontation between Elric and 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 Ikun, who has discovered the twin blade of Stormbringer, Mournblade. Again. Sometimes I think reading Elric Manivine does weaken this story a, a pinch. I would say there's a lot of retreated ground, but it's weird that they even in the story he says like, "Oh, you found Mornblade again." Like it's a, it clearly it has happened before, and they acknowledge it within the story. So very, it's very interesting that that plays out. And I will say one thing about this: Ikun doesn't really get any like a big evil monologue. He doesn't get to have like a the verbal sparring with Elric like he did in the in Elric of Mernibane, in which he's constantly a thorn in his side and he can spit insults back at Elric. You're right, this is a fairly kind of direct fight. In fact, the focus is more on Elric's rage and his internal thoughts of I will have my revenge, I will kill you, paired with Cimmeril, who has just woken up. I don't think I ever quite got if if Yakun had like taken the spell off her or with the fading magic of the city being attacked, she'd woken up. But she's awake now and she's like, Elric. Yeah, I think it must be that like 
Maybe his concentration was broken. Like, he casts a spell on Elric that makes him, like, feel like he's being crushed in the hand of a giant. So maybe, like, you know, he could only concentrate on one spell at a time. I'm fair to accept that. It, it gets us to a dramatic point of Simril yelling at Elric, No, don't kill my brother. You must stop. Elric! cried Simril desperately. Save me! Save me now! Else we are doomed for eternity! Well, they end up doomed. Because Elric, he does not turn to save her. He prioritises the revenge above saving his love. And he... Well, he accidentally kills Simril. I don't know. I Obviously, this is a very important scene. Because this, this power charges the character's motivation for all of the series going forward. Mm-hmm. But I always have this kind of moment like, really? It always, I don't know, maybe it was almost slapstick to me. It wasn't this like grand tragic moment. It wasn't that Romeo no. and Juliet moment. It was just a... Oh, seriously? No, it's it's perfect. It's it's amazing. Like, the whole point of it is, like, you know, there's a quote from Bleach. It's not said by any character. It's even said in between chapters. But it says, uh, if I hold the sword... Sorry, I must hold the sword to protect you. But if I hold the sword, I cannot embrace you. And the point of this scene is Elric is so guided by hate that he can't let go of his sword. That his sword is in motion. Um, And that if he was able to restrain himself and his hate and his anger and his lust for revenge, he wouldn't harm Cimmeril. But because he's guided by his actions, he literally skewers her on his sword as as, uh, Iacoum throws her at him. And and she dies. Like it's it's a really straightforward and potent metaphor. Cimmeril was weeping now, pleading with him, but Elric could do nothing. The drooling idiot thing which had been Iacoon of Imrir turned at its sister's cries and stared leeringly at her. It cackled and reached out one shaking hand to seize the girl by her shoulder. She struggled to escape, but Iacoon still had his evil strength. Taking advantage of his opponent's distraction, Elric cut deep through his body, almost severing the trunk from the waist. And yet, incredibly, Ikun remained alive, drawing his vitality from the blade which still clashed against Elric's own rune-carved sword. With a final push, he flung Cimmeril forward, and she died, screaming on the point of Stormbringer. Then Ikun laughed one final cackling shriek, and his black soul went howling down to hell. Okay, I'm going, I'm prepared to accept that. Personally, I felt it was just a little bit too slapdash for me. Or sword dash. It does happen pretty fast. But I do understand. And it does head up. And it is about... It's not about what physically happened there. It's not that Elric could have just turned his sword aside. It's that that he couldn't. That he was so in the moment, in the zone. The blinkers were on. They couldn't mm. even realise the painfully obvious thing that was about to happen. And I think that does fuel then why he's such a moping about it for so long. And more specifically, some some, some specific stuff I want to talk about in the subsequent two stories. Uh, that being Elric's relationship with women throughout at least those two stories, but also the rest of the series thereafter. Um but before we do that, let's wrap up the story by saying that afterwards, we get a sort of smash cut forwards. We don't see Elric participate in the raid at all. He just goes back to the ship and he's moping, as he'll spend much of the following stories doing. He's moping on the boats and then they are pursued by 
uh, Melnibane's greatest weapon, the dragons. The battle barges come out, the dragons are on high. Hey, look, it's our pal, it's Divim Tvar. He's gonna fucking kill Elric in revenge. That's a good reason to read Elric of Melnibane first, to be like, Divim Tvar is gonna kill Elric. That is actually a really cool moment. And I love that all these characters that get just these tiny name drops in the Dreaming City then actually get fully expanded further on. I love seeing like, the dragons, by the way. There is so much more setup in Weird of a White Wolf than I've ever imagined. I've read through Weird of a White Wolf for a second time to prepare for this episode whilst reading, reading Stormbringer. All of Stormbringer hinges on so many things that are introduced in these stories. I thought these were going to be, like, completely separate stories. Like, Elric and Moonglum would be the continuing characters. But, like, they are all so incredibly important. Jarkor, Pantang, even Jerig Learn or whatever his name is. (laughs) Yes, a lot of them come back. I found that when I first read this story, Geordie... I really felt like it was the disappointing end to almost like a weird trilogy. This reread helped me so much to appreciate it as That's like great. the epic kickstart to the next sort of trilogy of subsequent books in the Elric saga. I really enjoyed this so much more on a reread because I could see all these characters and instead of just kind of being like drowning a bit in all these improper nouns and having characters that I sort of knew, not really given the full characterization. It was nice to see these are the seeds and knowing that they're going to germinate and grow. And yeah, as you say, you know, this is all about the setup and it introduces us now to Elric's new thrust, like what he cares about now that he's he's lost everything, his love, he's spent his revenge, his nation is gone, everyone who's ever known him now hates him. And his sword is to blame. He throws the sword overboard, but it's it's cursed. It won't leave him. It sinks. And I love the description about how it sinks into the water, but only as though it were hurled into the ground, like halfway in. And then he has to desperately and pathetically swim out to retrieve it. And then he says to his blade, then he realized that he and a blade were interdependent. For though he needed the blade, Stormbringer, parasitic, required a user without a man to wield it the blade was also powerless we must be bound to one another then elric murmured despairingly bound by hell-forged change and fate-haunted circumstance well then let it be thus so and men will have cause to tremble and flee when they hear the names of elric of monibane and stormbringer his sword we are two of a kind, produced by an age which has deserted us. Let us give this age cause to hate us. It's so cool. It's so goth. And it is so cool. See, I love that moment. I think it's a great declaration. But what I really like is actually how it compares to then how we see Elric in the start of the next story. He's very depressed. While the gods laugh. Yeah, he's depressed in a pub. He's just moping around, you know. He's got his head on the bar. He's like six drinks deep. <laughs> and I just can't get it because that is, that is like the epic, like, call to arms for all of his despair. And then I like the pathetic kind of showing of him in a lot of the subsequent stories. Like, there is, on the grand scale of it, I think this is part of the story of Elric, is that there is no real glory in his 
self-depreciating like misery he has these like moments but a lot of the time and I, I really get the impression like between the stories that we read he is just moping he is just getting drunk and being sad some could argue that his whole life subsequently is almost one long suicide attempt refusing to take his own life or give it to Stormbringer he keeps hurling himself into danger again and again and again whenever he has a chance to find peace you know he says he wants to find peace he says oh I just wish to find peace and then when he's given a chance to take it he refuses it and he heads back out for more adventure to just make him more miserable so that he can get more people that he cares about killed like that's what's so marvelous about it Elric is is doom ridden perhaps because it's his destiny but he couldn't be forced to take part in his destiny if it wasn't up to him it's him at the end of the day he is the one who decides these wretched actions because that's just his nature at this point so let's talk about how that plays out then and the next story introduces we say all that misery the one glitter of life and hope yeah that elric has in his miserable life and that is the character of Moonglum. Moonglum. Who comes riding in. Moonglum is, is, is basically, it's, it's wonderful that it he just has this fucking weirdo following him around. Elric is so doomy and gloomy and dramatic. And Moonglum is just this weird short man who's described constantly as being very ugly. Uh, who's always cracking jokes and always being like, thank you, Elric. It's so helpful that you're here to save us. I never gave Moonglum that voice in my head. But you're right, he's, he's continuously... That's what the narrator does in the audiobook. He sounds like this. Yes, he does. Well, that's just perfect. Moonglum is such the counterpoint where Elric is tall and pale and graceful. Moonglum is made, he is specifically short, ugly. It's just cheerful. I, to be honest, I don't quite... I know why Moonglum is like, good for Elric. And I'm glad that they're together. I don't quite get sometimes why they hang out so much. I'm happy that they do. Because I think they're kind of... The dichotomy yeah. of it is really entertaining. But when you look at Moonglum... Like, There's really only one explanation at the end of the day. And this has come from someone who's gone very far into the relationship between Moonglum and, and Elric. I haven't finished Stormbringer and I haven't finished Citadel of Forgotten Myths. But other than that, I'm pretty sure I've read every story in which they're hanging out. And there's only one explanation, because Moonglum is so different from Elric in so many ways. He's very materialistic. Like, he wants gold and money and women and stuff. He's got to be in love with Elric. He's got to be so in love with Elric. There's no other reason he'd stick around this long. Like, after Elric gets married, that's when he leaves. Like, that's when he goes away. I can certainly see that interpretation. I think... You can either... I would actually very happily go down that route. It's probably either that, some destiny bollocks, which isn't nearly as fun. I also like the idea that maybe Moonglum is just a little head of the curve. And he just he's the only one that kind of recognises that things are going to go down and Elvick's going to be at the middle of it. So he just figures, I'll hang around this guy. Maybe I'll turn out okay. I definitely think he's like, listen, this guy is going to be the center of so many crazy adventures, and I could probably get rich if I'm just there for some of those adventures. Uh, he also saves Elric's life 
so many times, like way more times than Elric saves Moonglum's life. He's the real MVP. Every time Elric gets himself captured, Moonglum always manages to slip away so that he can like save him at a later point. Okay, so let's return then to While the Gods Laugh, the second short story. Geordie, what do you think of this one? Other than introducing Moonglum, I think this is a... And they're going to say, um, this is a this is okay. I think this is good, but I don't think it's one of the greats. It yeah, I agree. It's just okay. Like um, it's really really simple. Elric gets approached by a, uh, a a woman who says, "Listen, I want to take you on a quest. I want to find this book that contains all knowledge. It's older than time itself." And Elric's like, "Yes, I need to do that because then I can find out the answer to if." There is meaning to the universe. I want to find out if there is a true creator and someone who's in charge of everything. And she says, great. And I want to get my wings because I was born to a race of people who have wings, but I don't have wings. It's wonderful that he introduces her as a wingless woman. And without the context of that, there are winged people in the world. It's, it's fantastic because the moment you say she's wingless, you're like, so there are people with wings to what? It's mwah. Such economic storytelling. Well fucking done. But the actual adventure itself, it's it's just, they fight some ghost dogs. Does some quick sound. They go, they go somewhere. They find a book. Big dramatic twist. The, the book fought, turns to dust. It probably wasn't cliche when this was written. Oh, uh, you say that. I'm not as confident. But you're right, the book turns to dust. And then they walk off being all sad. And then Moonglum goes... Ooh, there were some diamonds studded on the book cover. See, not all is lost. Ride off into the sunset. The one thing that I think is worthwhile talking about this story is the misogyny, uh, which is, like, pretty rancid. So, and I'm going to get this name right. Sharilla? Sharilla, I'm going to say. Yeah, Sharilla. Sharilla is given... So she's the opening. She has the first, She approaches Elric and says, I want you to go on a quest. She's the inciting incident. She's the quest. And giver. when that first happened, I was actually quite like, cool, good, good. I like you. That's nice. Let's see. Let's see. You have the agency here. And then that just vanishes. Not only... She immediately yeah. starts complaining. I don't want to be in the quest. It was your idea. And Elric's like, well, we must push forward so I can answer these questions. He's like, no, no, it's too dangerous. Also, Elric is just like, yeah, you're useless in any fight. He's like, just wants to pick her up, put her on a rock and go, stay here. I'm going to go have my action scene. I know. It's ridiculous. Like, uh, like, even it's in some ways, it's almost worse than like Conan stories that were written 40 years beforehand. Because at least some of those, like, like, take Olivia in... Uh, what's it called? The Shadows in the Moonlight. Oh, in Shadows right? in the Moonlight, yeah. Like, she is starts the story as a complete damsel in distress, but she ends the story by saving Conan. Like, she finds her courage, she sneaks into the camp, and she unties him, and then that's that's helpful to Conan, and then they run away together. What do we get at the end of this one? She starts, st- I think, at the end of this story, Elric basically just abandons her. Yes! And then she sadly, I think the the very ending scene is her walking into like a dark cave, and that's it. Like no satisfaction, no no lesson. Even if it's like a lesson learned, even if it was like you know she learns like Elric's like I can't, I'll never gain anything with the book. She goes, well, I know I'll never have wings. I won't be among my own people. But you know what? I'm special in my own way, or I'm going to go and hang out with the people who don't have wings, regardless, or just something. So the thing about it is that Elric, 
Elric discards her because he's afraid of attachments, you know. Like, that's the, the, the underlying point of it. Um, the problem is that the story, and again, Elric is not the narrator of his story. We have an omniscient relator. That means that we're not seeing things through Elric's eyes. She is textually useless and very whiny, whiny and kind of annoying. Um, and that makes Elric annoyed at her. But Elric doesn't need reasons to be fed up with her. She could be the most wonderful and helpful and useful person in the world, and he'd still shove her away because he's not over Simril and he hasn't gone over his baggage yet. Which, in many respects, would be a more poignant scene if you were reading exactly. this thinking, oh, Elric, if only you could get over Simril and, like, be happy with Shirilla, then you'd have some mm-hmm. happiness. You're both outcasts yeah, in your own way. Story, the start of a singing citadel, he's like, oh, I had to get rid of her because I, then I'd be too close to her. And that's great for you to say, but you can't just tell, you have to show as well. So, criticism there. At least Yashana is a girl boss. And she keeps her agency. You know, she continues to say, right, we're going to go off on this adventure. And she sticks by the adventure and is part of it. Again, she's the inciting incident, once again. And she's doing that whilst being like, you could argue, oh, she kind of falls in some manipulative tropes, some negative tropes around how women are manipulative and use sex to get their ways and stuff. Um, I mean, I would not, I that's, that's probably fair criticisms, but on the whole, she's such a, such an improvement over the treatment of Shirilla in the previous story that I almost just have to let it go. To be quite honest, this, these three stories represent a really interesting step up, I feel, between each one when it comes to the representation of the of the female characters, particularly in terms of Elric's love interest, not that there are a lot of other female characters in these stories. Cimmeril, I, believe, I think the term you get a lot on the internet is like fridged. Her role is to die to have an impact on Elric. Yeah. She has no fair characterization. She's completely fridged. Shirilla has that, you know, inciting incident. She's the one who gets the story going, but then falls quickly to the mm-hmm. wayside right, and isn't yeah. engaged in the actual adventure. Step she up again. has the sort of problem which characters like Kumi in Hajime no Ippo, or I guess to a lesser extent... Like the girlfriend in Creed, where it's like, no, don't go on your cool, fun adventures. Be safe. Um, and obviously you don't want to support that character because you want the hero to do cool stuff, even if what the other person's saying is completely reasonable. Don't go risk your life for no good reason. So then I think it actually is a nice improvement. Now, I can't remember the top of my head. I don't think Morcock continues this upward trend. I do think he plateaus a little bit with the representation yeah. in Queen Yashina. But it is still an improvement. Zaro Zinya is like, woof, hollow as hell. The only thing, if I wanted to kind of defend Morcock, which I don't even think I do, is that most other characters who aren't Elric get the similar kind of treatment. I disagree. There's plenty of cool male characters who never get probably dismissed. Divim Tvar and Divim Slorm, you know, they're respected and cool and like... Elric respects him. He never abandons them and gives them short, short shrift. Yeah, you're absolutely right. There is no defending it. It is pretty bad. And it, he doesn't have, like, a Baylit character or even a Valeria character, you know? There are no, like, women who get to go on adventures with Elric as complete equal partners. No, the best we get is that kind of evil sorceress kind of archetype. Do we have that? I think so. In the next story, um, in the... the 
Vanishing Tower. Do we not have a sleeping sorceress? Tongue? No, it's um, that's this the guy. It's Thelab Kaana. Oh my goodness, you're absolutely right. She, she, the one you're thinking of is a good guy, and she also dies tragically. Well, that is just disappointing. So let's focus on the p- positives then. So, Singing Citadel story is pretty cool. It is a really cool story. It has some really cool imagery. Eric's back to being cool, guys. He's back to being cool. We get in this a really nice setup. I love Elric having to interact with what I call more normal people. There is a line in this story. And I'm just going to flick to it. I'm going to flick to it. Because this line, for some reason, despite every great epic thing that is said, this is a line that, I don't know, it just embodies Elric at his most human. Elric at his... very interested in hearing Duncan's Elric voice. I'm, no, I'm really scared to do one. This is Elric when he's not being deeply remorseful to himself. He is not Elric in his most despair. This is Elric when he's a little annoyed and he just wants to tell someone to get lost. His crimson eyes flickered with a dangerous emotion. I am not used to such familiarity, young man. Oh, that is a good line, actually, because the guy, like, he touches his sleeve to like, catch his attention, and he's just like, what the fuck, man? What the fuck? And the follow-up, Yolan's hand fell away. Forgive me, I was self-indulgent. I should not have let my emotions override diplomacy. I, I just love the fact that of all the big things Elric does, he just gets to look at this, this young man who's touched, you're right, he's touched his sleeve, Elric just stares him down and goes, You what, mate? Here's something I really love about this story, right? This story sets up way more than I anticipated. The first time I read it through, I did I had no idea that this would lead to anything. I thought it was complete full stop. It introduces the character of, along with Yashana, the character of Thelab Ka'ana, her sorceress, who's deeply in love with her, and he's cripplingly jealous of the fact that she chooses Elric over him. And Thelab Ka'ana... I I know this would happen. He's Elric's nemesis. He is his number one recurring villain. He comes back again and again as a thorn in Elric's side. He does indeed. Quite interesting with this one, because I do think his role gets slightly amped up thanks to the Sleeping Sorcerer slash Vanishing Tower. Because, you've got to remember, Geordie, originally introduced in With the White Wolf in the final short story, yep. then you would have gone straight to Bane of the Black Sword. And so I think his time with Elric... Bait- Wait, really? Yeah. The Sleeping Sorceress didn't come before Bane of a Black Sword? No, it did not. It was written after Stormbringer. Oh my god. As the first... when Because well, Moorcock's like, this character's so popular, how do I continue? And he went, I know, I'll just insert more stories, kind of plodding That's along adventures. That's why Yishana's in Bane of a Black Sword. Yes, because it was the right follow-up. It's direct continuity. So Vanishing Tower slash Sleeping Sorceress, that's why we get a lot of Theleb calm in that story, because he yeah. can't be killed yet, because that's happening later. Yeah. So he just appears as a recurring villain throughout a couple more short he stories. Just, listen, seriously, Sleeping Sorceress is, it's entirely Theleb Ka'ana trying to kill Elric. Thousands of people die. 
so that Thelib Ka'ana can try and kill Elric. And all because he got cucked. <laughs> Tanalorn, the Eternal City, is almost wiped from the multiverse. Quorum almost fails in his quest to fight the Dukes of Hells, all because Thelib Ka'ana got cucked. And to be clear, if he'd just, like, been chill and stayed at the palace, Yashina would would have come back to him because Elric blew her off and went off on another adventure. Exactly. Let that be a lesson, people. Stay cool. Stay frosty. Don't get too bent out of shape when you get left on red. So, I think in The Singing Citadel, there's one more thing we really have to hit on. And he's probably, like, the highlight of the story, I think. Was he the actual highlight? Mm, I'm prepared to give that over. You're talking about the villain, aren't you? He He's sort of the thing... I'd say then he's the unique selling point. He's the part of a story that sets this one apart from many of the other Elric stories. Because this is the first time that Elric has a face-to-face conversation in canon with one of the Lords of Chaos. Well, chronological canon anyway. Publication canon too. But yes, we get to meet... Yeah, publication canon, that's what I meant. We get to meet Balo. Barlow, Baylor. No, we're going Baylow. Who, who is the jester to the gods of chaos and law? Or is it, I don't know if it's and law. Gods of chaos at the very least. I think it's just chaos. I don't think the lords of law would have time for him. I think they get pretty impatient. He definitely reminded me, and obviously I know this came first, of the god of madness, Shergora from Elder Scrolls. Mm. He's like... In just kind of how he's sort of, he is kind of going for that funny angle, but he's just sort of on the edge enough that it becomes a little bit scary. Is he the guy in Skyrim who gives you a goofy quest with a magic staff that turns things into other things? Yes, he makes cheese rain from the sky and he has an excellent expansion pack for the Shooting Isles, like top tier. Oh no, not Skyrim, Oblivion, sorry. Oblivion, he has the expansion pack. Top tier, that expansion. But yes, he is. He makes cheese rain for the sky. He can turn people into sheep. That's quirky. But That's quirky, baby. That's so random. That's some Deadpool <laughs> shit. No, Balo is really good. It does make this story, particularly compared to the previous story, um, While the Gods Laugh, because I didn't really have a villain. It had some of this ornamental no, demons throughout, but there wasn't like a character that you could kind of get behind. Balo is that, and Balo is quite fun. Now... I actually have a comic book adaption of this story, sorry, adaptation of this story, uh, written by Roy Thomas. And in that adaptation, they make him look very jester-like, like for long. He's also very mm. round, I think, to fit with the idea that he gets squished into like a ball near the end of the story by the <laughs> yeah. ultimate by um, Elric's god. Elric? Elric? How do you... Who's Elric's so, patron god called? Uh, in the audiobook, it's pronounced Ariok. But in the Skeletor album, Elric of Melnibane, a heavy metal album exclusively dedicated to the stories of the first couple of stories of Elric of Melnibane, and also just one song dedicated to Dragonlance, uh, he's called Ariok. But they mispronounce a ton of stuff in that album just to make it fit in with, like, you know, the meter of the songs, like, they call his homeland Melnibone, because they couldn't make Melnibone fit into the song. 
So it's Arioch. 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 Blood and souls for my lord Arioch. 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 He's Fado. Yeah, they make him very round basically for that scene when he gets consumed. But he ultimately gave me very similar vibes. Have you ever seen Cowboy Bebop? I'm ashamed to say I haven't. I, I keep well, meaning to. Well, then this to. reference is going to go hover over the your edge. Head. I'm like, it's, it, it's eight episodes, Geordie. Just watch it. But I still haven't done what, it. Eight episodes? It's really short. Or maybe 13 or something. It's uh, one season. I think it's about 24, but that's well, fine. I know. Yeah. <laughs> Don't worry. Well, there's a villain in that who, like, hangs out at a fun fair and he's quite circular in design and he flies about a lot. And that, Baylor gave me a, a bit of a similar vibe, but very lightly but yes i like this villain i like the way he's described i really love michael moorcock gets really good for kind of out there descriptions i mentioned mm. a little while back when we did our jurel of jewelry episode that one of the few things i really liked was sort of the weird dreamscapes moorcock nails dreamscapes better than any other author i've read personally and there's just this little moment when elric makes meets Balo. And it's just that when it swings a little bit quirky, the scene sitter overall has loads of cool kind of visuals. But I just love this little bit when he meets Balo, where he says, Balo was, and it's not a direct quote, Balo was the same size, but as if he was larger in stature, yet not. And Eldrick basically concludes that Balo's the same size of him, not because Balo is the same size of him, but the fact that they've both become giants. Mm. and you're like how do you know that from reference but it just gives you this idea i think it's like that's not how geometry works elric you shouldn't be able to tell that but can you though because if things don't no, move at the same can't. speed then i know but air like molecules stay at the same relative size presumably i'm thinking they get more molecules so like things would move maybe slower if they're larger things have more weight they have more mass and it gives this kind of really kind of like dreamlike this, element to my head this story establishes and makes it canon that elric doesn't know what mass is there's a joke in the story where balo makes this point about essentially basic physics and then he says you know for all the height of sorcery which your empire rose to you fail to understand simple physical principles you can do great works but you have no comprehension of how you do them and so it's 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 this actually really surprising through line which i did not expect to realize would be like a huge theme for the stories of elric but essentially you know the fact that they rely on sorcery and not on like scientific progress is sort of an intrinsic aspect of the doom of this world the world has to sort of perish before humanity is able to actually ascend and be enlightened. It kind of gives that idea that Monibane reached its peak, but its peak was still this sort of medieval fantasy land. Mm, you know, it's, it's stagnated. It's, an, it's such an old empire. Like, it's tens of thousands of years old, and they haven't actually accomplished anything. They conquered the world, and then they lost the world. I'm sure there's so many more kind of historical comparisons that you could draw to that. Um, The only one I can think of is obviously the British Empire, but I'm sure there are plenty of other empires that did similar things. Well, in terms of like technological plateauing, like many societies just sort of get to a certain point and then no farther. I mean, like if you look to, 
well, this is a bit more complicated, but like anthropologists often look to indigenous societies to say, because there wasn't this certain pressures to force you to develop new technologies, the stuff that worked just kept working. Like you didn't need to fix problems that you didn't have. Oh, that's a fascinating idea. I would love to know, say take like the Roman Empire, was there like an era when the, on the rise of the Roman Empire where like there was an industrial, their industrial revolution, did they plateau or was it consistent throughout? Things well, like that. Obviously, just... they never got to the point of industrial revolution well, because they were so, so far away from that point. Can, a, a relative comparison though, did there, was there like an early stage they could go, okay, for the first like 300 years, technological advancement was like whoosh and then it kind of went and kind of eased or... I know on the grand scale I mean, of humanity, it was just an exponential like curve. That, you're not really looking at big spikes since, like, the Stone Age. You know, uh, in terms of, like, really cool stuff like the invention of agriculture and the invention of boats. Those are the big developments. But not really, I mean, when you come down to a fundamental level, there's not a lot of difference between a trireme and, like, a Viking ship. So... You're talking about a thousand years of technology and the fundamental principles behind building a ship hasn't really changed. Like, they wouldn't invent, like, flaws on ships for, for, for like, almost, like, I don't know, 2,000 years? The idea that you could put multiple flaws on a boat to keep the insides dry? So that's what we're going to do. I now want to go out and listen to a history podcast. Yeah. Sometimes when you, you read about fantasy worlds and you do just go, you know, this is incredible. But probably what's actually happened in the real world is probably just as mad when it comes to empires rising and falling. But yeah, back to Manibane. Yeah. They have fallen. Elric's on his own. We get to the singing citadel. And I do like the fact that Balo is mocking him. And he's mocking him. He's mocking his entire empire. And it's a nice kind of putting things back in perspective that even though Elric is very much focusing on the self... In the grand scheme of the gods, or at least as far as Balo wants to put out there, it's still small fry. Now, I think the real thing that takes taken away from this, we haven't talked about Balo's plan is he wants to create a new realm on Earth, uh, which will be his own. So you know, it's a classic thing. You know, he wants to be a god walking amongst mortals after being cast out from the Lords of Chaos. Um, and Elric has this point to him where he says like, you want a world that res- that has a bit of law and a bit of chaos. We already have one of those. That's our world. And Baylor's like, well, you'll make room for me, basically. The idea being like, well, this will be my world now then, won't it? And Elric has this big moment of triumph in that he's able to just call upon his Lord Ariok to take care of stuff. And now here's the really interesting thing, Duncan. In just about any story... A god showing up at the end to solve everything would be a huge flaw. That's There's a trope about that. It's called Deus Ex Machina. It's considered a mistake on the part of the author. So why is it that every time Elric just calls upon a god to come save him, and it works, it's so cool? Why is it that he just gets a pass? Because it is always really awesome. Well, I think there's a few factors there, personally, having read the entirety of the sort of the Elric saga. Number one is the fact that it doesn't come out of nowhere. We get Elric continuously reinforces connection to his god, the fact that we know that the rules of this world is that the god can intercede. 
And also because we get plenty of scenes when Elric cries out and his prayers go unanswered. I think they're quite important. You know, this isn't a gal of any situation card. So at least it gives you, the reader, that bit of tension of will they, won't they kind of attitude. Mm. Plus, he's a cool god and he, he doesn't just show up and wave his hand and the villain disappears into dust. There's mm-hmm. always a bit of a throwdown, a bit of lording over, and a lovely bit of Elric. You remember the deal. I help you now, but later you'll see. And that goes throughout all the books, all the way up to Stormbringer. I think it's that sense mm-hmm. of just you wait, just you wait until the day your debt has to be paid in full. What I really like about the appearance of Ariok in these cluster of stories is that his first appearance. And his second are really, really different. Like, up to this point, if you're reading this in publication order, you've never met a Lord of Chaos before. You don't know what they are. And the first time he appears, he's this shapeless, gibbering shadow, which is very Lovecraftian. People look at it and they go insane. Even Elric feels like his sanity fraying when he looks upon Eric's like, as close to his true form as he can possess on this plane. But the second time he shows up, He's like this handsome, beautiful man, and he's named the Knight of Swords. A little, a little nod to Corum. It is indeed, and if you're going in chronological order, I think when he first appears, is he a small child? And then yes, I feel like well, like... no, no, he's specifically he is a child, but he's a giant child. Oh, like he's a he's a, he's a, a youth. He's a little boy, but he's taller than Elric. What I want to know is, does Ariok think this through? Is it part of his, like, grand plan? Or is it just the fact that whatever he's doing at the time in his other realm, he hears Elric's call and he's like, okay, gotta go. So sometimes he kind of <laughs> catches him. Sometimes he's playing little child. Some days he's being a suave bloke, trying to catch ladies. And other days he's just hanging at home in his bathtub in his purest form. Mm. And it's like, oh, him again. When Elric wins the day and he leaves, uh, we get a classic pulp moment where, oh no, it's not all over. There's one more, dun dun dun, there's one more last twist. And that twist is that Theleb Ka'ana uh, sends Mothra to kill Elric. Giant moth creature. This... Giant moth creature. This was kind of fun. I personally felt like this is just, okay, cool. Let's do another fight. And uh, to be honest, it's worth it because Moonglum pops up. Moonglum rushes in and he duels with a giant morph or sort of a soldiers run away, one of whom Elric thinks about drinking. And we get our great twist on, like, Elric calling for help. You know, I just said it's cool when he calls Eric's, uh, calls Eric for help. I mostly think it works because every time he goes, Eric, Eric. Come to me, my patron. It just sounds so fucking cool. But this time, he doesn't have the strength to summon Eric. He doesn't even have the strength to summon, like, an elemental. So he has to get Yishana to help him. The only time he does this in the whole series where he uses someone else's, you know, strength to help him summon something. And they summon the Lord of Lizards, which is a thing that happens several times in this and in the Vanishing Tower, where in addition to summoning elements... There are just the Lord of Cats, the Lord of Birds, and they just come to help Elric, which is, it's so, it's really interesting because it really stands in contrast to the rest of his powers. He's always a summoner, but sometimes those summons are a bit odd. 
this world has so many kind of like fantastical elements you're like how okay so are there like several courts and maybe there's you've got all the elementals i get there and they live in, in the earth and you've got the dukes of chaos okay but these lords of the creatures do they have their own court do they understand or they just kind of like beings i think that's the idea of the lord of lizards it gets really sandmany, actually doesn't it the idea that it just is magic in unexpected places See, my actual main thinking was Discworld. Obviously, that came later and it probably was, to a very great extent, parodying off this kind of fantasy. That you just kind of go, well, of course there is a lord of that. Why wouldn't there be? Yeah, I mean, at some point, the lord of cats, then the lord of magic. And I feel like I listened to our episode on Elric of Monibane and I remember for some reason it really evoked a lot of stuff from the color of magic. So maybe. Maybe out there, you know, the very specific stuff that we that I didn't realize was being referenced in Discworld is going to tie back into Elric, but we'll have to see it another time. Uh, they defeat the giant moth by summoning a lizard who eats it. Very good stuff. And, um, and we get the defining moment of a sword and sorcery hero, which is the moment where someone says... Now, Elric, come. I shall give you everything you want. You will have a life of peace. You will have a life of riches. I will put you on a throne. You shall be a king. And he says, no. No, I can't do that. I have to keep being an adventurer. And this is something that Conan loves to do. You know, he loves to steal a diamond necklace. And then as he's, like, leaving, he throws it away. Because it's not about the diamond necklace. It's about the adventure. Don't think that scene ever quite plays out, but isn't that I the end so many of the, the oh, what's it called? A really, really racist one. Like, there's a lot of racist uh, Conan stories, but the really racist one. Shadows oh, and Zambala. Yeah, shadows and man eaters of Zambala. Yeah, yeah. Okay, fair enough. That less spoken about that one. And he gets like a diamond at the end of that, right? And he like throws it away. I think he gives it away. I think he basically just gives it away to like some beggars or something along those lines. It's just like, oh, I was just in it for the fun. Mm. You guys have fun. I'm off to the next adventure. But I like that. I also like how with Conan, it's always, no, I just love life too much. I have a lust for life. I must go off and be joyful and happy yes. out there on horseback. Yes. And Elric, it's always like, no, no I am too sad. I, can never I can't be possibly. Happy. That's not allowed. I must continue to suffer in my life of adventure. Mm-hmm. And then Moonglum's like, you and me, buddy. Let's, let's go. Let's fucking go. Let's get that Theleb Ka'an out. Even though we have to chase him to the other side of the earth over the course of the next five stories. So let's talk on those stories then. Because, Jordi, we've kind of gone on and on at the start of this episode and our last episode on Elric about how you read these. But even now, I'm confused. Because let's say someone wants to go out and read Elric now. Where they go on Amazon, what are they going to find? Yeah, so Duncan is specifically nudging me uh, to try and tell a story. So a really great way of experiencing the Elric stories would be to listen to the audiobooks because they present the story in the order which Michael Moorcock wants you to listen to them. Now, that isn't personally for me the way I would choose to listen to them. For example, I don't really like Fortress of a Pearl. I intend to finish it one day, but only after I finish the rest of Elric, and I really want more Elric. As Duncan once advised me, the same goes for Revenge of a Rose. However, it's not as easy as you might think. So, if you are British, 
then I would recommend you hunt down the specific books one by one. You will need to get Elric of Monibane. Uh You should just skip the following two books. And, uh, wait, I don't know why, I actually don't know where you get Sailors and the Seas of Fate. I'm sorry, you're on your own, because I read the audiobook for that one. But if you want to read where you go from here, after this, you're going to need to find The Vanishing Tower. Now, fortunately, you can find that in The Sleeping Sorceress, along with a bunch of other Michael Moorcock stories, which don't have anything to do with Elric. But they're just there if you want them. If you want to read the first bit of The Eternal Champion... Go ahead. You can also read, and I would recommend this, Thing of Stone. So, sidebar, Duncan, you need to read Thing of Stone by Michael Moorcock, because it is a parody of the character of Corum, written by Michael Moorcock, and no one has ever written a more scathing critique of their own story than Michael Moorcock does, and it is fucking hilarious. Well, I'll have to go and find where that collection is, or where it is as a standalone. I really can't Maybe help you there, man, because you're going to have to buy a whole other book in order to get as far as I'm concerned. If you want to then get the rest of the stories, you're going to have to buy Revenge of the Rose. It doesn't matter if you don't want to buy Revenge of the Rose, you're still going to have to buy it, and then you're going to skip Revenge of the Rose so you can read the rest of Bane of a Black Sword, which is no longer called Bane of a Black Sword. The story, Bane of a Black Sword, is in there, but it's alongside all the other ones, like The Stealer of Souls, and The Caravan of Forgotten Dreams, or The Flamebringers, whatever you want to call it. The next book after that is Citadel of Forgotten Myths, which came out last year, so clearly you don't need to read that one, because not even Michael Moorcock had read that one, and then after that you're allowed to bring Stormbringer. But, that's only if you're British. That's only if you're British. Michael Moorcock, you'll remember, is a British author. And yet, if you want to read, or listen to rather, the audiobooks, where all of the stories I just mentioned are in one package deal, all of Revenge of Rose, all of Steel of Souls, all of the Vanishing Tower, all of Bane of the Black Sword, all of Stormbringer, is all in one edition of the audiobook, read by a fantastic narrator. But only if you're an American. They don't sell it in the UK. You can't get in the UK. I tried to sneak in and get on Audible, convince Audible that I was living in America, and he wouldn't fall for it. So I, so I had to close my new free trial of my American account, and I can't, I can't read it. I have to keep buying paper editions and reading those, and I don't get to listen to it when I'm at the gym or when I'm on the bus or anything like that, because I'm not, I'm not living in America. Geordie was so, so salty when he discovered this. It's been he out me in the for week, a like, year. I, I didn't spent know so much find money. it on any of the Audible audiobook apps. Now, it is agony that we don't have a, a good audiobook edition in the UK for no clear reason. You can't even buy a Michael, CD. Michael, sort this. I'm sure we can find cassette tapes out there. Now, that's a good question. Put them Are in your Sony Walkman. Stormbringer cassette tapes? It just makes me so happy that I'm, I'm, I'm satisfied with my 1980s paperback copies. But I feel for you. I really do. Geordie... Hello, Duncan. Did you like reading Weird of the World? Oh, yeah. This is a really good collection. Like, we've laid out all our problems with it, like the misogyny and stuff, and the minor quibbles we have. But 
my god, if you're a fan of fantasy, you owe it to yourself to read this, because this is historical stuff. This is the start of so much material which has influenced fantasy. You know, I... This is a weird thing. I haven't even told you this, Duncan, but not a couple of weeks ago, I spoke to the author Mark Lawrence on Reddit about the sword Stormbringer because he was saying this was the first talking sword in fantasy. Now, the sword doesn't strictly speaking talk, but it's potentially the first sword with an ego. And um, there was some debates, like, is this the first talking sword? I stood up and I said that I think the sword Cortana from, you know, the paladins of Charlemagne is the first talking sword, even if it only communicates in text as opposed to speech. But other people have pointed out that Michael Moorcock directly took inspiration from a Finnish story, the same story which inspired Turim Turinvar in Tolkien's Legendarium. I've forgotten his name, means of a K is like, I don't think it's like Kosovo or anything like that, but it's something similar. I'll, I'll, I'll edit him right now. Kalevala. All I've got to say to that is, firstly, that's amazing. Love Mark Lawrence. And secondly, Stormbringer does say words. One sentence. But you have to finish Stormbringer to read that final sentence. I would recommend it. Duncan, would you recommend it? Of course I recommend it. This is amazing. Uh, Rereading it after having read the entire saga, much improved. In fact, I'm now leaning away from my original recommendation of reading these books chronologically it's really hard for me i still feel like i do recommend elric of melnibonet first because i think as a full traditional novel it creates an easier introduction i can see people hitting weird of the white wolf and the short stories within particularly if they start reading the first story in the collection the dreams of urbeck and going what on earth is this skip that Go straight yeah. to the Dreaming City. Do, would we even so, say then, Duncan? I'm still a little bit iffy, I mean. Could it be that the right order to read it in is you buy Weird of a White Wolf and then you read The Dreaming City and then you jump back and you read Elric of Mordebene? Yes, it could be. I wish I could have tried that for the first time. We need to find a friend who's not read any of these, Geordie, and start testing them with different orders and then like gather their feedback. Really, that's not a fair test. We need to find 100 friends who've never read this before. And 50 of them will read it Elric of Nibbene. And then 50 of them will read it Weird of a White Wolf. And then we'll compare reactions. But we have to lock them all in a room and make sure they don't interact with one another. Well, if you think that sounds like a really fun idea and want to get involved in a survey like that, then you could reach out to us on Instagram at Is This Just Fantasy Podcast. Uh, where we not only post when we go a new episode out, but also lots of content in between, reviews on other books that we've read. I very recently played a review on Elantris and my thoughts on some of the Star Wars Legends comics. Geordie's always coming up with great memes, particularly rating to Elric, so go and check us out there, guys. If you want to send us a more in-depth message, you can always do so at isisjustfantasypodcast at gmail.com. Love to get the feedback from you guys. It's always great. Duncan, whose turn is it to pick books? I genuinely don't remember. It's actually your turn, Geordie. Is it? That's funny. Yep, I, you picked Hansa Girls sort of for, on my, for me. I gave you Elric. We're now all even. Let's get back to you. Yeah. We're going to read This one's for Fortnite me. Style. It's not for you. <laughs> we're breaking there. We're not being nice anymore. We're not doing the pay it forward thing. We're not doubling it and giving it to someone else. It's my turn. Duncan, our next episode's going to be on October 1st, and you know what that means. Spooky month? It's, it's going to be our book club. 
Ah, yes. I remember mean, that? Remember that thing I came up with last year and was so smug about? Book Club. You were smug. It is a horror, but it's also an annual tradition, I think, because I can't believe... I mean, if you make it so. Haven't I been a good boy, Duncan? Haven't I shown so much restraint in that it's my favourite fantasy series and I have waited an entire year before bugging you about it to make us read it again? I know what this is. You do know what this is, baby. It's time for Berserk! Alright, let's return to Berserk then. Put your grasses on, people. Let's do this thing! Just the next arc, right? You're not asking me to read the whole thing. Not the whole thing. We're going to read the Conviction arc. We did the Golden Age, and now we're going to do the Conviction arc. Which I think, this is my instinct before we start reading it, before I revisit it, I think this is the best part of Berserk. Well, I, having read only the Golden Age... I actually don't see how that's possible to be topped. So I'm Some people, very I'm excited. sure, would say the Golden Age is the best part, and I think there's justifiable, but so much of the stuff, which is Berserk, hasn't even been introduced yet. Like, we don't even have the fucking Berserk armor yet, and we're not even going to get to that in the Conviction arc. I didn't even know that it's called Berserk because of Berserk armor. It's not, but... It's a very important aspect of the series. It would be a serious, serious deep cut if you didn't know why the series is named what it is for 15 years, you know? That would be like if, I don't know, in The Wheel of Time, book seven, they were like, we found it. It's the Wheel of Time. <laughs> I love how little you know about Wheel of Time. I know, I don't know right. about Wheel of Time. <laughs> Can't wait to join you to revisit in a fortnight of time, Geordie. So excited, mate. So am I, Duncan, so am I. Duncan, to play us out, shall we just do some of our favourite Elric quotes? He closed his eyes and allowed his mind and body first to relax completely and then concentrate on one single thing, the sword Stormbringer. For years, the evil symbiose had existed between man and sword and the old attachment lingered. He cried, Stormbringer, Stormbringer, unite with your brother. Come, sweet Runeblade. Come, Hellforge Kinslayer, your master needs thee. I just love the fact that I didn't know about that quote in Bane of the Black Sword. I just picked up Bane of the Black Sword and flicked to it through about four pages and then was like, yep, that'll do. That's bang on the money. Into the shade gate. I have kept it open. Though Yakun thinks it's closed, then you must seek the tunnel under the marsh, which leads to the pulsing cavern. In that chamber, the rune swords are kept. They have been kept there ever since your ancestors relinquished them. Why were they relinquished? Your ancestors lacked courage. Courage? To face what? Themselves. I've been your host, Geordie Bailey. I've been your other host, Uncle Nickel. Goodbye, everyone. Bye. Goodbye.